Welcome to the Good Dog Pod. Every Wednesday, we discuss all things dogs, from health and veterinary care to training and behavior science. Follow us and join Good Dog's mission to build a better world for our dogs and the people who love them. Hi, everybody. Welcome. I am Dr. Michael Delgado, the standards and research lead at Good Dog. I'm here with Dr. Nate Ritter, who is our health and screening lead and Good Dog's resident veterinarian, and Dr. Judy Stella, who is the head of health standards and research here at Good Dog. Today, we're going to be talking all about hips, focusing on hip dysplasia. So just to kick things off, can we talk about what is hip dysplasia? Yeah, an important question to ask at the beginning for sure. And so hip dysplasia usually develops when the hip joint develops abnormally, or it can also sometimes be caused by trauma, but that's much less frequent. And so it's a ball and socket joint. You're looking at the head of the femur, which fits into a cup on the pelvis called the acetabulum. Those should grow together. If they grow inappropriately, you end up having some laxity in the joint, which then results in hip dysplasia. The joint continues to try and remodel around that which leads to some degenerative joint disease, osteoarthritis. So in a nutshell, that's what's happening. Okay, you kind of hinted at this, but can you talk about what are the causes of hip dysplasia? Yeah, so it's, I would say, mostly inherited, but it is multifactorial. And so there are environmental implications as well, which you can consider. You know, it's why we recommend animals when they're young have non-slip surfaces to build that strength. Additionally, you want to make sure you're feeding an appropriate diet. There are multiple things to consider, but genetics definitely being the most important. Okay. Can you touch on whether some breeds are more prone to hip dysplasia than other breeds? Certainly. Breeds that are more prone, and they include, you know, mostly larger breeds. We're looking at Golden Retrievers, St. Bernard's, Great Danes, Mastiffs, and some of the smaller ones you can consider pugs and bulldogs as well. But there are certainly animals that are more predisposed. Okay. But it sounds like any dog could be at risk of hip dysplasia, or is it really, you know, if you don't have one of those breeds, don't worry about it. Yeah, so for some, definitely less of a risk. You can't say that any dog isn't at risk at all, but there are some that I would certainly not worry about. Okay. And if your dog is at high risk, especially if you're planning on breeding them, you know, we talk a lot at Good Dog about testing for hip dysplasia. So there's two types of testing that seem to be the most common. Like one is OFA or the Orthopedic Foundation for Animals and registering your results there. And then there's PenHip. So can we talk about the difference between these two testing methods but maybe why someone would choose one instead of the other. Yeah, so it's a great question. And so I'll describe each process and we can kind of work out the differences after. But with OFA, what you're doing is you're having a veterinarian. It can be any veterinarian, your general practitioner, taking radiographs. It's one view. So the dog will be laying on their back with their legs extended and you're taking an image of that pelvis. And that image is then sent in to the OFA where three board-certified radiologists all look at that image, depending on nine anatomical points, and then they make a scoring decision. And that can be performed 24 months of age is the definitive testing and when it's recommended to be done, but you can do it earlier. 12 months of age is where it can count and be scored as a preliminary test, but you can even do it earlier than that. And then compared to PenHip, where you have, it's a program. So veterinarians have to be certified in order to have that done. The animal needs to be completely anesthetized rather than with OFA, usually strong sedation is recommended. There are three viewpoints which are radiographed. And what's really the important thing with PenHip is they're looking at the distraction index. So it's a numerical value, the difference between the center of the head 
of the femur and the center of the acetabulum, which makes it a little less subjective than the OFA where you have three different radiologists looking at this. So those would be the major differences. Okay, great. Thank you. And Dr. Stella, can you speak to the differences in like a prelim versus a definitive OFA test? Yeah, so the preliminaries with OFA are really used more for screening for, you know, you can assess your dogs at a little bit earlier age. So if they don't pass the OFA, then you can remove them from your program, rehome them and make those decisions a little bit earlier. If the dog is between 12 and 24 months of age and you take the x-ray and they score as excellent or good, then it's really likely that they're going to pass when they're 24 months of age. If they're in the fair borderline area, they may or may not pass when they are fully mature. If they fail, it's likely that they're going to fail as they mature. So it gives you a kind of an idea and you can make your decisions about whether to retain them in your program or not. But it is better to do them when they're 24 months of age. The other difference with the prelims is that it's only scored by one radiologist at OFA rather than three. And so there's a little bit more subjectivity in that, in that you don't have multiple people looking at it and making decisions based on it. So it is good. There are uses for it. But yeah, it's not as definitive as predictive of hip dysplasia at an older age. And then... The only other thing I would throw in with the pen hip, the one bonus to that is that you can do it at 16 weeks of age. So any puppy from 16 weeks of age on, and it actually is very, very predictive, even at that young age of whether or not they're going to have hip dysplasia later on. The other difference that's pretty interesting about these two different systems is that it's not 100%. We don't know this 100% for sure, but it does seem that the system that is being used with pen hip is actually assessing more of the genetic component versus the environmental component. So it does seem to be a little bit better at parsing those apart. And again, that's important when you're making breeding decisions. Okay. And just to clarify for our listeners, so your four-month-old puppy or your 12-month-old dog or your 24-month-old dog is not going to be showing signs of hip dysplasia that are visible. And so these tests are really about the predictive value in being able to say this dog is going to be affected by hip dysplasia later and potentially pass that on to their offspring, which, so, you know, you might say, okay, my dog's hips seem fine. My dog's getting around fine. I'm going to breed them. Yeah. Because it's a degenerative joint disease. So, you know, it takes time for that wear and tear on that joint for them to start showing signs of pain and debilitation and those types of things. I think though, I mean, Nate, correct me if I'm wrong, but if they're severely dysplastic, like really, really dysplastic, and there's no connection between that ball and socket at all, which I have seen, they will show signs pretty early. Yeah, that's definitely true. And I think on the other end of the spectrum is we know our dogs, they can be very stoic. And so sometimes you can take radiographs and be really surprised at what you see via the radiograph, but not what they're showing. So it's important to get a comprehensive idea. Great. And I think on a practical level, you know, a big difference between these two is just the fact that pen hip does require training. So you have to find a veterinarian who has been trained. And we should note that the training is free. So perhaps you work with a veterinary clinic where there isn't someone trained in pen hip, they can actually get trained and certified at no cost to them to do the training and then be able to do pen hip because it doesn't require special equipment. It's just the way the x-rays or radiographs are done. Is that correct? Yeah. Yes. Different viewpoints, different training. And then also, like I said earlier, the anesthesia is a difference as well. And so that would have financial repercussions. And so I would imagine that would be more expensive than, you know, having just a regular radiograph taken with sedation and submitted to OFA. The other quick thing that I wanted to add is in terms of those results, with OFA, you can choose whether to submit them or not if they are passing. And pen hip, every 
image that is taken is automatically submitted. So another important thing to add. Yeah, and that is really important because the way that PenHip reports out that distraction index, they do it on a breed-by-breed basis. And so they will compare your individual dog's score to the mean for the breed. And so you will know where your dog lies within the breed for every dog of that breed that's been through the process, where that's not true of OFA. OFA, the statistics are a bit biased, and there have been research to show this because, you know, I mean, people don't submit it if you take the x-ray with your veterinarian and your veterinarian says this dog is dysplastic and won't pass a lot of people don't spend the money or take the time to submit the x-rays i mean i don't know that i would do it either but then that's not in the database and so we don't know how many of those dogs are out there so yeah there is a little bit of difference there okay Yeah, so definitely important when you're looking on the OFA website, if you're looking at prevalence within the breed, as Judy said, it skews, unfortunately, to the side of it's probably, you would think better than it actually the occurrence is in the breed. So it's something important to remember. Okay, great consideration. We definitely encourage any of our good breeders who are getting health testing done on their dogs to register those results so we can have the best data possible. I think it's a constant struggle to really understand what the prevalence is of these conditions. And if we're moving in the right direction, right, the whole purpose of health testing is to hopefully improve statistics in our breeds, improve the health of dogs, improve health of all dogs, not just the individual puppies you're creating, but the puppies that those puppies might have in the future, et cetera. So if someone gets a distraction index and their dog is, their hips are better than the mean, then that's a good sign. Like that's actually an improvement for the breed, assuming that they're making conscientious breeding decisions with both parents. And then if their breed has a distraction index that's higher than the mean, is that time to like reconsider whether that dog has a place in a breeding program or can we talk about incorporating breeding decisions into the results that you get? Yeah, so it's a great question. And I think just because they may be below the mean, I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean that those can't be included in your breeding stock. And so there are a lot of different factors when picking a breeding pair. And so a lot of the different things to consider. Now, obviously, this is a very painful, debilitating disease versus some of the other ones that we recommend testing for. And so you want to definitely consider very strongly, especially depending on the breed, depending on their activity. And so it doesn't necessarily mean they can't be included, but you know, just another thing, more information you have when making those decisions. Dr. Stella, can you speak to the idea that we talk about a lot, which is just the genetic diversity in the breeding pool and how to think about that when we're either thinking about including or eliminating dogs from a breeding program? Yeah, it's really important to make sure that we are taking all of the information into consideration when making breeding decisions. There's no perfect dog, right? Like most dogs aren't going to pass every single clearance and have the perfect temperament and coat and, and, and. But, you know, you want to weigh these things based on the severity of the conditions and those types of things. So, you know, if you have a dog that is of a rare breed and is amazing quality and has mild hip dysplasia and you can breed them to a dog that has great hips or amazing hips, you know, excellent. It's also important to look at the pedigree of the dog. So like do their siblings and their parents and, you know, go back a few generations and see how much hip dysplasia is in that line. That's also important thing to consider because if you just have one individual dog, the phenotype of that individual is less indicative of what the puppy's 
are going to be like than if you look at the entire pedigree of that dog. So again, lots of factors to take into consideration when you're making those decisions. One thing people can consider is if you're on the edge and you don't really know if they're going to throw a lot of puppies that could possibly have hip dysplasia, you could breed one litter, test that litter, follow them for a couple of years and see how they turn out. If you wind up with really good hips on that litter, then that's a better indication that you may want to continue with that dog in your line. Okay, great. Thank you. And so it sounds like having a dog with hips that are mild or poor isn't necessarily a kick them out of your program, but it's like really do some matchmaking that would introduce better hips into the mix, basically. Okay. Matchmaking for hips. And do you have suggestions on how people can think about changing up their breeding stock or introduce better genetics into their breeding stock? Yeah, I mean, like there are tests now that you can do genetic tests that look at coefficient of inbreeding. You can make some calculations. There are ways that you can estimate breeding values and calculate those. Those are also really useful. And again, that's why it's important to register all the results and make them publicly available so that people can do those calculations and do estimated breeding values. Sometimes just getting dogs from the country of origin or internationally or importing semen internationally, things like that. I mean, sometimes it's easy easier said than done. And it's expensive to move dogs around and it's not easy to ship semen always, but those are some options that people can do to increase that genetic pool. Great. Thank you. Can we talk about signs of hip dysplasia? So this is something that would apply to any dog owner, right? You want to know if your dog is uncomfortable, if they're showing signs of hip dysplasia, what would people be looking out for? Yeah. So it's a general discomfort, which makes it a little bit difficult, but difficulty rising after they've been laying down for a long period of time, putting some weight on the forelimbs rather than those hind limbs. You appreciate in their gait when they're moving around. And depending on physical exams as well, you know, when you go in annually, the veterinarian will check range of motion in those hind limbs. You can sometimes appreciate crepitus or discomfort putting them through that range of motion. So that's why, of course, we recommend annual exams. It's important to keep an eye on that. They might appreciate something that you don't necessarily at home but it's going to revolve around motion, rising, laying down, moving around. Okay. And what about either prevention? So maybe you have a breed who maybe the tests look fine, but you don't want the hips to get worse. Maybe you have a sporting breed that's very active. What can people do either at home or how they exercise their dogs or maybe how they feed their dogs that might really help their dogs stay healthy hip-wise for their entire lifespan or as long as possible? Yeah, so it's, as discussed before, important to feed them an appropriate diet. Additionally, non-slip surfaces are important within the home. Exercise should be done, you know, as long as the dog can handle that. You know, over-exercising, what have you, can lead to injury or wearing down of those joints. Preventative supplementation. So sometimes, depending, I have used that with my dog once I started. He's older, seeing him slow down a little bit. But I would discuss with your veterinarian supplements. Unfortunately, to dangerous area where not a lot is regulated. And so I'd want you to get not only the appropriate product, but from the appropriate place as well. So that's something that can be done as well, which can be done before you see signs to try and make them more comfortable. Okay. And you mentioned appropriate diet a few times. Can you just clarify what that means? Yeah. So I always told people, and we had an interesting webinar with Dr. German who discussed it as well, but as long as it passes the AFCO standards, I'm usually pretty comfortable. There are certainly diets where Research is done, independent research, so not from those companies, but independent research looking into those brands to ensure that their diets are well-balanced, nutritious, etc. And so I appreciate those, and those were always what I would recommend. But as long as it passes AFCO standards, if you're feeding a fresh diet, I always prefer to have a veterinary nutritionist on staff. So I know there are companies that do that, so I would check if you're feeding a fresh diet to ensure that that's the case. 
but you'd be surprised at how many would be appropriate. Okay, great. And if your dog has not so great hips, can you actually do anything after that to improve their hip rating or change their hip rating? No, it's a progressive disease. And so we're really just trying to slow that progression to the best that we can. So we're not going to improve the situation, but we're trying to make the dog more comfortable. And so a lot of the times that starts with medical therapy, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, rest, when you see them showing signs of discomfort. And if it becomes severe enough, there are surgery options that can be taken, whether hip replacements or removing the head of the femur, some things that are definitely more extreme and would want to definitely try that medical therapy first, but there's things that can be done to make the animal more comfortable if it comes to that. Okay. Do you want to add something, Dr. Stella? Oh, I was just going to say one thing that people can do throughout your dog's life is just keeping them lean too. Just make sure that all the extra pounds, all the extra fat, obesity also causes inflammation and all of that's going to make it much, much harder for your dog. So it's really important that we keep them lean throughout their life. Puppies all the way up into geriatric dogs, they all do better if they're lean. Excellent point. And, you know, here at Good Dog, October was Canine Obesity Awareness Month. So we had a few webinars on this topic. And we hope that our listeners will check those out because we had Dr. Carrie Westgarth and Dr. Alex German, and they both gave really great talks on various aspects of canine obesity. And, you know, just to also get across the point, like we take hip dysplasia testing very seriously here because it's so debilitating. So can you speak just briefly on like how it affects a dog's quality of life and why this is such a serious condition? Yeah, so it makes it really difficult when they can't move around and they're uncomfortable and in pain. And then it's something that, you know, unfortunately, it it can lead to a decision of humane euthanasia if severe enough. And so it's, that's why some of these other things, as debilitating as they can be, it's not that severe. It doesn't necessarily lead to that. And so it's really important that we can do the best to avoid it if possible, if it comes about, do the best to combat it. Okay, great. And, you know, I think this would be a good transition into talking about good dog standards and why we have created them and how they relate to hip dysplasia. So Dr. Stella, can you talk a little bit about the good dog standards related to hip testing? Yeah, we really do value health testing for dogs. It's one of the pillars of keeping our dogs healthy and giving them a good long life span. Hip dysplasia, as we keep saying, is really debilitating. It's really painful. So it definitely will negatively impact their well-being. And since it's a disease of larger breed dogs, it makes it even harder because it's really, you can't get them up. You can't get them around. You can't carry them outside or up the stairs. I mean, you just can't do anything for them. So we do think it's important that for the breeds that it is common and prevalent, that everybody screens for this particular condition. We have three levels for our health testing, excellent, great, and good. Good is our entry level. And for breeds such as like German Shepherds and some of these larger breeds that it's really prevalent that we do require that all the dogs are screened for hip dysplasia before breeding. And that's part of our minimum requirements. We try really hard not to make these recommendations onerous. We try to the best that we can to support breeders, to help them find veterinarians that can do the testing. We give discounts up to $100 a year to help defray some of the costs for these tests. But it is important. It is important for the population. It's important for individual dogs. And it's important for puppy buyers to know and understand this. So yeah, we do have these health testing levels. We do take it seriously. We are constantly working to improve them and get information out there to educate puppy buyers, to educate breeders, and to really work towards improvements at the population level. Great. And can you provide some advice for a puppy buyer? So maybe their breeders, breeding dogs have been tested 
does it matter what the results of those tests are? The results are part of the decision-making process and how should puppy buyers talk to their breeders about hip testing? The thing that we really want to stress is that transparency and having that conversation. We want puppy buyers to be able to talk openly with their breeders. The breeders know their lines. The breeders know their dogs. They've done all of the work that we were talking about earlier with taking all of the information they have about those dogs and the pedigrees of those dogs to make these breeding decisions. I haven't met many breeders that are purposely trying to breed dogs with hip dysplasia. That's not what they're trying to do. They're trying to better the breed, but you know, they do take into consideration all these different factors. And so it's really important for puppy buyers to have that discussion with the breeder, get a better understanding of what the decisions were, why they were really talk to them about the lines and talk to them about what their health guarantees are and those types of things as well. And then just make an informed decision, find the dog that's right for you. Some people in some breeds, maybe it's, you know, in some lines, maybe it's not as important and there could be really good reasons for the decisions that the breeders make. So again, we just really want everybody to understand the implications of these different types of diseases and conditions. And again, just really have these open discussions with the breeders. Great. And Nate, did you want to add something? Yeah, just quickly, when the buyers have that information, when they come in, not just for the first veterinary visit, but throughout the life of that animal, if they have an understanding of things that possibly they're predisposed to, that's really helpful in the personalized care of that animal throughout its life. And giving the veterinarian the best idea of what the animal might encounter is really helpful. So important, not only for them to make that decision, but then afterwards also to care for the animal appropriately. Okay. Yeah. And the breeders also often will know because they've been dealing with these dogs that are prone to these types of conditions, they might have tricks and tips that they can let puppy buyers in on that will help them, you know, especially those environmental factors to make sure that the puppies have the best growth and exercise plans and all those types of things to try to prevent these to the extent possible. Now, I did want to touch on a few more testing issues. And one is just clarifying for our listeners, is there a genetic test for hip dysplasia? Can you show me the genes? (laughs) Right. And so unfortunately not. And that's because multiple genes are involved. And like we said, not only multiple genes, but multiple factors. So even when we're looking past inheritance, there are other things involved. And so unfortunately, this is one of those diseases where it's, you know, you really need to look at the phenotypic testing rather than the genetic testing. And I think another concern that comes up with the x-rays that are required for testing for hip dysplasia, two issues. One is the safety of sedation or anesthesia. And second is whether or not the positioning of the dog for the x-rays could exacerbate a hip problem. Can you speak to those two issues? Yeah, so it's a great question. And I know that was something I encountered in general practice all the time. The fear with sedation and anesthesia, it is quite safe. And I would say, honestly, if you're performing these, it's safer for the animal and the staff. The animal, that's not necessarily a comfortable position to be put in. It will not hurt them unless they struggle. And that sedation is helpful to make them comfortable to be put in that uncomfortable position and also to position them appropriately as best you can for that image. I know we have a lot of breeders that call regarding that subjectivity with OFA and the difficulty in the positioning. And that really is exacerbated when the animal isn't sedated appropriately. It's hard to position them. Their muscles are tight. They move unexpectedly. But if you have heavy sedation, you know, much easier to take those images appropriately and the animal will be much safer for it. Okay, great. Thank you. Okay, well, thanks everyone for listening today as we talked all about hips. If you have questions about hip testing or any of our standards, please feel free to reach out to breeder team at gooddog.com. 
We have lots of resources on our website, including our Good Breeder Center and our Health Hub. So if you go to gooddog.com forward slash health hyphen hub, you'll get all kinds of articles, including several on hip dysplasia, hip dysplasia testing, our screening standards. So please feel free to visit our website, reach out to us if you have further questions. Again, thanks for listening. Thanks to Dr. Ritter and Dr. Stella for answering all of my questions about hips today. And until next time.